Okay. Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Back street, back. All right. <laughs> don't I, mind us. I actually did have something to tell you, and I don't know if you know this. Did you know the Lizzie Borden house is for sale right now? <gasps> for $2 million. Including rights yes, to the business? Yes, I did. Yes. I mean, can I know. you imagine? You guys, if we all pull our money in together. <laughs> Listen, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> Vacation home. Everyone chips in. <laughs> and we will buy the Lizzie Warden house. Oh, that's so funny. I did see it last night and I was like, how crazy would it be? I would change nothing. No, you couldn't. I don't think... Is I'm pretty it sure in the it's contract? a Well, I think it's a considered a historical landmark and oh, okay. so they're protected. Good. Or whatever. Yeah, I wouldn't change anything. I'm sure you can to certain extents, like if you have like the floor falling in on you, like you can whatever. But yeah, that would be really exciting. Oh yeah. I was really what I was really thinking was like I hope whoever does get it, buy it. Um, that they keep it going as a business that people can go into. I feel like, like I, that should be part of the agreement. I like hope you so. have to. Because we have plans to go eventually. Right. Nothing in stone yet, but like we want to go there. So, um, yeah, please, whoever buys it, keep it as. Yeah, so we can come a and place visit. I can go. <laughs> and then once we come, you're free to do with whatever go you ahead. want. Yeah. Do whatever you want. As long as I get some Lizzie Borden on my EVP, then I'm good. Or her dad or her mom or whatever. <laughs> and that'd be funny. I should ask Kara for an EVP thing. Ooh, that's Valentine's a good idea. Day. That's a good idea. It's very very romantic. Yeah. <laughs> I want ghost hunting equipment. That would be super cool, actually. That I, would be fun. Mm, I would not be opposed to getting I mean, that for Valentine's Day. You might. <laughs> Kara would be like, where do I even start? Right. Look on Amazon. Yeah, for exactly. <laughs> Please. Ghost hunting materials. Thank uh, you. Excuse me, Jeff Bezos. Can you help me out here? <laughs> I wish I had the money. I would buy it. Yeah, me too. I wish I had the money, period. That's true. But <laughs> but if I had that type of income where I'm like, $2 million, psh, cow. <laughs> I'd be a $2 million owner of a Lizzie Borden house. That's what I would be. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that would be really cool. Yeah. In our True Crime Chats episode, we talked about guilty or innocent, you decide. And one of the topics that came up was Robert Durst from the HBO docuseries The Jinx. Yes. So, Fatina, you hadn't yet watched this series at that point. So we were like, okay, well, you watch the show. I'll watch it again. And then we'll talk about it. And then I decided, like, we can't really talk about something that generally if people haven't seen it they're not going to understand it so i have basically retold a lot of the tale of the jinx in my notes okay and we'll discuss as we go okay um right now i'm through parts one through four so this will be a two-parter because going through one through four i have nine pages of notes and And there's six total there's six right yes and that's not even including everything that happens after the sixth episode okay so this is before he goes on trial, which he is on trial currently for the murder of his friend Susan Berman. Okay. So, unfortunately, I won't have an end result to that trial by the time we get to part two because his trial has been delayed due to COVID. Right. Because it was supposed to happen early 2020, right? mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it started. It started. Oh, that's right. Like, two weeks before shutdown. Okay. 
So it started, but it, now it's on a hiatus. So we're going to kind of like go through it and talk about the show. What I found is if it's not broke, don't fix it. And the guys that did the jinx did a really good job with the chronology of this. So okay. I'm going to kind of tell go you my first impressions of it. Yes. So after we talked about it on the last podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. I went and watched it. Yes. I like, okay. I went and started to watch it. Mm-hmm. I fell asleep. That's never a good sign. And then I tried watching it again. Mm-hmm. I fell asleep. <laughs> All so bad signs. I was like, okay, this is not working for me. We're going to talk about it. So I need to know what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. I watched it now in my living room and I... Did you watch it in bed the first... The first two times oh, I watched well, it in bed. So I was like, okay, I'll watch it in the living room. And... I was not drawn in. That's really interesting to me because I've now watched it in. three times and every time I find it more interesting than really? the last. Yeah. And I tried, you know, usually I force Kara to watch things with me or she's in the room. Mm-hmm. She's an unwilling participant, but she's in the room. She loves me. Um, and she couldn't get into it either. And I'm just like... So it's neither of our things. This is weird. I watched it all the way through because uh-huh. I knew we were going to talk about it. So you know But for where me, the ends. cinematography and just like the, not the content, but just the way it was presented, it was very, uh, I do better with either reenactions mm-hmm. or I do better with at least a photograph you, of who okay. they're talking about or a thing that they're talking about like the evidence pictures and stuff like that like I'm a very visual person so I had an ex that told me one time that shows and movies and whatever it's either action or it's dialogue but very rarely is it both yeah and I think you're probably more action-minded yeah. where you like the the shock and the drama and everything yes. like that. This is very dialogue-heavy. Right. And if I'm going to do dialogue, podcast all day long. Yeah. Give it to me. Make my brain do the images, right? right? But if it's sitting in front of me and I'm like having to look at it and I'm like, but there's nothing to look at. I was like, what? Do, where do I do? What do I do? So, so I just, you probably... I end up on my phone and I'm just like, oh shit, now I missed 20 minutes. What, so you probably were more inclined towards the fifth and sixth part than you were one through four. Yes. Okay. Because that's where things start to pick up because it's happening in real time. Right. Okay. So the first ones, I was just like, and and, I'm, and, and I'm, you'll get into it, the, mm. the details. But I even told you, like, I need someone to, like, break it down to me. Like, yeah. what's happening? What's going on? Because a lot's happening because there's, I mean... We'll get into it, but there's three different storylines that are happening right. at the same time, and we're jumping decades back and, and that forth. was my issue that mm. I, because I kept getting distracted with things on my phone and whatnot, mm. I would jump back yeah. in. I'm like, uh, are wait, we in the we 80s talking, or are we yeah, in the 2000s? Yeah, weren't we talking yeah. about the neighbor and weren't we talking about like, uh, okay, yeah, let's let's talk about so, let's talk about it and let's talk about that damn wife of his. Okay, let's go. Okay. <laughs> The second wife? Yeah. Wow, she's a savage. Yeah. Okay. So um, this does contain 
not just spoilers of the HBO it's series The, the Jinx. Um, it's basically a retelling of it. Yeah. But um, don't come after me because I'm giving you credit. No plagiarism here. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you haven't watched it yet, now's a really good time to continue to listen to this podcast. <laughs> and then when we're done here, you can go and watch it. And that way you're ready for part two. Yes. Okay? All right. Perfect. Oh, yeah. That's a good way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we are kicking off in Galveston, Texas with part one here. And immediately we open with a torso being pulled out of the bay in Galveston, Texas. And it's just a torso. So it has no head, no limbs, no nothing. And it's in a suitcase. Investigators then continue to pull things out of the bay and they find a variety of limbs in these trash bags. Yep. So we get the two arms, the two legs. But they the had me there. Yeah. I was like, okay, where this is going? I remember me saying to you like, oh, it starts off slow. And then I was like... Damn, no, it doesn't. It, like, no. it hits hard because right at the it, beginning. right off the bat, they do flash some pictures of, like, the bags and stuff. So yeah, like, the toes. Oh, I like where yeah. this is going. Yeah, so right away, we're, like, dismembered body, yes. okay? So all the limbs had been sawed off except for the last arm. And the last arm was sawed off halfway through before whoever does this basically steps on the torso and uses it as leverage to snap off the rest of the bone. Yep. And then saw the rest of the way through. So they literally broke the arm off. Mm-hmm. Um, which, wow, a lot or of force. pulled the arm off. like Right. Yeah. So it's not just a clean saw. It's a break, um, which takes obviously quite a bit of effort. The divers go into the bay to try and recover the head, but it's never recovered. Right. And so there's kind of like a lot of head scratching about this. Huh. Missing head. Uh, uh, No pun intended, but it really worked out. Oh, man, that's funny. Um, But not. I love a good pun. So in one of the trash bags, they find a newspaper, and the newspaper is stamped with an address. And the address that they go to is a house that is split up into apartments, if you will. So they share a main hallway and a staircase, but then on either side, they're basically like these converted rooms that are, Mm -hmm. like, turned into apartment-type living. Um, The renters of apartment one and apartment two were two individuals, we'll say. Okay. So apartment one was rented by a man named Morris Black, and apartment two was rented by a woman named Dorothy Siner. She was a mute old female And that's what we know of her. The landlord said that he doesn't see Dorothy much, that she paid a year of rent up front, and that she doesn't talk. um, And when they see each other, they see each other from a distance. So they find, you know, Morris Black's apartment or whatever, and they're able to match fingerprints from the limbs to Morris Black in order to identify him because he doesn't have a head, so we can't identify him by face. We have to identify him by fingerprints. And that's how we find out that the person that lives in apartment one is the person now that is being pulled out of the bay. Wait, what? They find Morris's fingerprints on the body? No, they use his hand, like his limb, Uh to match fingerprints in order to determine that it is the same. The person that is in the bay Uh is also the person that lives in this house because the fingerprints from both match. Oh my God, I... I thought it was a woman this whole time in the bay. Nope, it's a guy. Well, I... <laughs> wow, you checked out real quick. Nope, the person in the bay is a man. Okay. 
the woman that lives next door to the victim is a woman. Okay. Quote, unquote. A woman. Okay. Keep that... Sorry, guys. Apparently, I really was not paying attention. I am doing a huge disservice. So this is all new to me. So if you haven't watched it, then you are going to be just as surprised as I am. Okay. That's a lot to keep track of. (laughs) So the investigators also find blood in the shared hallway between the apartments that leads into the apartment for Dorothy, which is weird. Okay. Because the blood matches Morris Black. So why is it going into Dorothy's apartment? But that's all they need in order to get a search warrant for Dorothy's apartment. So they go into the apartment. They find drop cloths all over the floor. Like painter's drop cloths. Like Dexter type shit. Exactly. Okay. So they pick up the drop cloths and they find that there's like small cuts in the tile. And so they lift up the tile. And they find bloodstains underneath. And the blood underneath the tile matches the victim's DNA. Okay. So they know that this is where he's been dismembered. And the marks on the tile are from, like, knives and saws hitting the tile. So they go to the landlord and they're like, we need to talk to Dorothy, please. And the landlord's like, you know, she travels a lot and she's not really here very often. So I'm not really sure where she is. And the detective's like, well, that's really weird. If she has money to be traveling all the time, why is she living in this dump or whatever? And so they're like, can you give us a description of her? And the landlord <laughs> describes her as an ugly, deaf, mute woman with a flat bust. Oh, my God. Okay. I was like, ouch. Yeah. Ugh. But the detectives find that weird because there's nothing to suggest that a woman lives in this apartment. There's no makeup. There's no women's deodorant. There's no, like, hairbrush hmm. type things, bobby pins, like, things like that that you would expect to see Associated from a woman. Female. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like that around. No women's clothing, no bra hanging anywhere, like nothing like that. So they're kind of like. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> right. We have a bra on the floor. So they're kind of finding all of that very strange. And they quickly come to the conclusion, after talking to the landlord some more, that they don't think a woman actually lives there. Because the landlord says that he also sees a guy coming and going from this apartment quite a bit. Oh. And he thinks because of how closely she re- he resembles the female tenant that they must be related. Oh, okay. And the detectives <clears throat> go, no, 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 they're not related. It's a man disguising himself they're as a the woman. the same person. It's the same person, exactly. So the detectives also go through the trash. And when they're going through the trash, they find an appointment receipt for Robert Durst. For an eye clinic. Yes. I remember that. So they go to the eye clinic and they say, hey, is this a patient here? And they're like, yeah, actually, he's supposed to come in and pick up glasses, but he never showed up. And the detective leaves his pager number and says, if he comes in, give me a quick page. And he said, Vegas odds that this guy shows up. Like, you know. And so he is looking into the boson, where that all comes from or whatever, when he gets a page. From the eye clinic, paging him 911. And Robert Durst has come in to pick up his glasses. Dun, dun, dun. So he goes to the eye clinic, and Robert Durst is pulling out of the eye clinic onto the street. And so he pulls up right behind him, and they stop him as a traffic stop. And in the back of his car, they see a bow saw on the floor of the car. Yeah. So at that point, 
they actually take him into custody. So just so you guys know, Bo saw, they show this in the documentary. It's literally what it sounds like. It's like a bow and arrow size saw. So -hmm. it's like the bow size of a bow and arrow. It's like a really big, that would let you cut like a log or like a tree. tree. It's like the type that you use to cut down a Christmas tree. If you live in a place that you do that kind of thing. But a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... The idea is that you can use it from either side type thing. Yes, or one on each side, two yeah. people thing, yeah. So they take him into custody at that point, and they said that this is not the person that they expected. They described him as looking like a librarian, <laughs> um, that he didn't fit the profile. And sure enough, like, the saw they find, like, has DNA evidence or blood evidence, and they're like, this is, this is a slam dunk or whatever. Yeah. So... They arrest him and they charge, um, or they set bail at $250,000. And so Robert Durst asked the detective, well, what do I do now? And the detective's like, well, do you have $250,000? And Robert Durst says, well, not on me. (laughs) And the detective's like, who is this guy? Who says that? Right. So he's trying to figure out who the heck this is. And meanwhile, Robert Durst makes his first phone call from jail and he calls his wife, Deborah, And he says, he's in jail in Galveston, Texas. He's been charged with murder. He needs $250 to post bail. And she says, no problem. It'll be there in the morning. Hardly blinks an eye at it. And the detectives are like, what is going on? And one of them said, had I known what I was getting into, I don't know that I would have gone into it so willingly. Like everything that was going to come out at this point. So obviously Deborah's his wife. She has no idea that he's been living in Texas until he calls from jail. She did actually manage to get him the money within 24 hours. He posts bail 24 hours from being arrested. And the detective comes in the next morning after arresting Robert Durst. And he says, never does he have voicemails. He maybe has like one or two. He had 21 messages that day because New York had caught wind of this story and everything had blown to pieces because over in New York, they know exactly who Robert Durst is. Yeah. Yep. He's kind of a big deal. A big deal. In Galveston, Texas, nobody really knows or cares who Robert Durst is. But what we find out is that he belongs to one of the richest families in New York and is also suspected in the disappearance of his first wife. Right. So this is kind of a huge news story. Like the New York New York Times is freaking out because they're right. like, um, we need we need to yeah, know what's, what's going happening. On. There's something yeah. new happening with this guy who we know or is suspected of. Right. Being involved, yeah. Give you some background information. The Durst organization owns nine office buildings in New York City. They're a real estate tycoon. They own so much property in New York, it's not even funny. And Robert Durst is the oldest son. So he's a real estate heir. Right. And... His brother just sits there and rattles off every single address completely. And that shook me. I was like, like, who knows? I barely know my address when I'm ordering on Amazon. I was like, what the hell is my address? Yeah. So his brother is interviewed by detectives. Not, and they get that footage for the documentary. Yeah. And they're like, what properties do you own in... Or how many properties do you own in New York? He's like, nine. They said, what are the addresses of these properties? And he just like... Rattles them Rattles off. them off. So he they have property on in Times Square. On Fifth like, Avenue. They, I mean, yeah. they have money, honey. Yeah. 
Absolutely. They said he alone is worth like $4.4 billion or something like that. Jeez. Which we'll get into figures at some point. Which but. is, all that to say, this is how 250000 was yeah. like a sneeze. Like, it's nothing yeah. to them. And I should specify, Douglas is worth that much money, not Robert. Right. But they, the they have a ton of money. Yeah. yeah. So that's why 250000 is no big deal. And wife right. is like, yeah, sure, I'll get it to you. So he posts bail and his court date rolls around. For his arraignment, which in is Texas. very shortly afterwards. Right. Yeah, in Texas. in Texas. And he's a no-show. Right. Immediately, alarms start going off. Because this guy has means. He's got transportation. He's got multiple, like, homes he can stay at. Right. And he's also being sought after for multiple murders at this point. One right. he's being charged for in Texas, but now we're finding out that he's a suspect in a few others. Right. And so his brother, like, kind of panics and decides to hire a bodyguard to protect himself and his wife after Robert goes on the run because he's, like, he's acting bizarrely and I just don't trust him. Yeah. Which I'm, like, I would, too, based if on how If you have the he... money for a bodyguard, then please. And yeah. if you see how Robert acts in the films, you're, like, okay, there's some... He's... He does not care for his brother one bit. And no. we'll talk about that a little bit more. So he... Brother hires a bodyguard and Robert's on the run. So he's using a bunch of different aliases. He shaves his eyebrows and his head. And they ask him, like, did you intentionally shave off your eyebrows? And he's like, how do you accidentally shave off your eyebrows? Like, yeah, of course I did that intentionally. <laughs> so he does all that because he's like, you look weird when you shave off, blah, blah, blah. He's got, like, this really gravelly, like, old man voice. He's on the run for quite a while. And they actually catch him in a grocery store in Pennsylvania. Because he's trying to steal a sandwich. No, he stole the sandwich. Yeah, he stole a sandwich. <laughs> and the hilarious <clears throat> thing is that he stole a sandwich despite having $500 in cash in his pocket right. while he was in the store. And another $38,000 in cash in his car right outside. Mm -hmm. So he has a ton of money on him. He also has um, weed in his rental car. Two different guns and Morris Black's ID. So why did he steal the sandwich is really the question. And I have my theories on it. And this comes into play because he very much operates. Did he say why he did that? He said that he was just trying to see if he could get away with it. And then he said like, oh, I kind of felt like I wanted to get caught. Yeah, he says something like that. But he also, in other interviews that they didn't include in the HBO documentary, he alludes to like this idea of... Some rules apply to him and some rules don't apply to him. And the rules that do apply to him, it's kind of up to him whether he follows them or not. So he's got like this very like entitled. Spoiled, yeah. Spoiled rich kid. like Don't need to go along with things. Yeah. Test my boundaries. Hmm. Test my limits. Yeah. So uh, let's see here. So he steals a sandwich and he gets arrested. Right. So he gets arrested. And the video of it is hilarious. To me. Because he's just walking around the store. He's just like, I want this sandwich. I'm just like, what the hell? You're not even going to try to sneak it out? You just walk out with a sandwich. Uh, yeah. and then called him a sandwich. Well, and then like security then, approaches him and they're like, you need to come with us. And he was like, and like an idiot, I went with them and <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I was like, yeah, that was actually really dumb. Yeah, because once you're at the store, for the most part, mm -hmm. you've made it out the store. 
So then we start to get a little bit more background at this point about his time with the Durst organization and how much money he has, because now we know he's posted bond. He's got all this cash on him. So we need to know a little bit more about his background as far as his money goes. So when he's interviewed by police after he's taken back into custody, they're like, do you work for the Durst organization? He's like, well, I did work for the Durst organization, but I didn't really go there very much. Right. And so then they cut to his younger brother, Douglas, that said he stopped working there in the 90s because he just wasn't showing up at all. And his dad, who was Seymour Durst, had to make the decision at some point of who to pass this down to. Right. <clears throat> and Robert was in line as the heir. And he skipped over Robert and passed it down to Douglas instead. Which I'm sure didn't go over like as smooth as That's what I said. Which didn't sit well with Robert. Yeah, I no. put that in my notes. Can you imagine like sitting pretty to be the heir to a company like that mm-hmm. and then it being given to your sibling? Yeah. So Ouch. There's that whole thing. So apparently when this happens... Um, Robert doesn't take too kindly to this. And Douglas said that Robert had actually threatened to kill him over this. Right. And Robert was like, man, man, I don't, I don't think so. And so, that's why the brother this time around, he's like, uh. We're not going to play with this. When he acts unhinged, right. he's like, I'm going to protect my family. Life. Yeah. Yeah. And then we meet, really for the first time, Deborah. <laughs> this bitch. <laughs> so Deborah is Robert's current wife. Um, and we get the pleasure of all these audio recordings of the two of them talking while Robert is in prison because all phone calls are recorded. Yep. Deborah also gives police interviews, which are recorded, and she's just like such bothered. Yeah. That she's talking to the cops. And they're like, Was Robert married at the time that you guys met? And she goes, Well, as you know, that's kind of a complicated question, but yeah. let's say that he was. Right. And um they're like ask her like the anniversary or something and she was like early september she was like december of whatever and they were like december 11th and she was like yeah like she Mm -hmm. couldn't remember the date that they got married right and um didn't know that he'd been living in texas and yeah she's just like full of attitude she was yeah that's exactly she was sassy she was just like bothered that they were asking Mm -hmm. her questions you know, run of the mills, like, can you spell your name type of things? And she would be not saying that's what happened, but yeah, she would give ass like sass, like, and she really fans the flame. Oh, right. Yeah. She's just like Deborah. Like, yeah, I guess there are a few ways to spell Deborah, but no, she really fans the flame when it comes to Robert. Um, because like they're talking about Douglas inheriting the business at some point And she's really driving home the idea that his brother has stolen his birthright and he's just doing this to embarrass him and blah, blah, blah. And she's like screaming this at Robert. And what I come to like my own, my own conclusion on this is like this woman knows how much money there is to be lost. And she's going to make sure that she gets a good chunk of it. Uh And she's pissed that more money is not going to Robert and she wants him to be pissed about it. So he he gets more money so that she gets more money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she's just like a real instigator. And then we come to more on the murder case, obviously. And at the forefront of this is Janine Pirro. Now, you might know Janine Pirro as Judge Janine from Fox News. Um, She was also on the Today Show quite a bit and NBC News as a contributor. 
Um, but she was a district attorney at the time for this mm-hmm. Galveston, Texas case. And she had her sights on becoming a judge and she had like these political campaigns going. So she had desires to further right. her career. And if you she, see her face, you know who we're talking about. If you hear her yeah. voice, you yeah, know who we're true, talking true. about. And then on the flip side, the Durst family has hired their, or like sent over their family attorney to right. represent Robert Durst. Like they're willing to, like their deep pockets, they're willing to put yeah. as much effort and resources into right. defending Robert with this. Right. And when he's on the run, his this family attorney is like, Robert, please come home. They don't, make like a public they're like, plea for Don't him. be concerned about money. We'll take care of the cost right. or whatever. I was like, wow, okay. Yeah. They're not like, we love you, come home. They're like, we'll pay for it. It's fine. Get back over here. (laughs) Exactly. They don't take the approach of like, hey, no worries. We know you're innocent. They're like, no worry. We have enough money to fix it. Come home. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Deborah did not care for this guy. She hated him and made no bones about it. So she screams at Robert on the phone, like, he's a cancer, blah, blah, blah. At one point, she threatens to divorce him if he retains him for his case. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sure you will. Sure you will. Yeah. But her biggest issue, which comes out, is that she was afraid that the defense would be that Robert Durst is incompetent for mm. a variety of reasons. And with that, if they actually prove that he was incompetent for this murder case, the family might be able to take that and say that he was incompetent in his marriage with Deborah. And if that was the case and things came down to something happening happening to Robert, they would have more of a reason to not give her the trust that she is due to inherit as his surviving spouse. My understanding, the way the way I perceived it, their marriage is more of a paper marriage. Yes. It's not my husband and wife. Yeah, she didn't even know he was in Texas. She was like, well, right. this is news to me type And then thing. even when they asked her, like, do you know what he did after he got off on bail? She's like, well, I don't know. Probably went home and showered or something. Yeah, she has know. no idea. And uh, Yeah, okay. So, but she makes no bones about the fact that she's like, you're not retaining him because if he does this whole incompetent thing and yeah. then this, you guys win based on that, then when something happens to you, they're going to say the same thing that you were incompetent at the time we got married and then I'm not going to get the money. They're going to get the money. Right. And she's like, pissed about this and so robert's like oh okay so he's extradited to texas doesn't fight the extradition and the family attorney is the one that arranges for all of that which i would (laughs) i would fight extradition to texas let me tell you i think in new york um which he was actually in pennsylvania but in new york the the harshest sentence you can get is 25 to life with for a murder? I don't know. This is the harshest sentence, period. It's 25 to life. What the hell? Whereas in Texas, they're like, light him up. <laughs> like, yeah. It's very different. But they're like, yeah, sure, like, extradite him. It's fine. So Robert sets his side on the attorney that he wants. And he's like, I want this guy who's like Dick DeGlass something. I got to remember the name. I will at some point. He's a big deal. He's the guy that negotiated on behalf of Waco, Texas. Oh. So, during that whole thing, yeah. He, yeah, he represented the compound. Sure. So, he's, like, he's a big deal. Like, he's a top defense attorney in Texas. Big case kind of guy. Wife doesn't like him. She likes this guy over here. They're, like, so they're fighting over which one of these Who guys they to... they should hire, right? So, they compromise and hire both. <laughs> you got the money for that. 
Both attorneys cost $1.8 million. And when he's on the phone with her saying like, this is the retainer fee for them, this is retainer fee for them, so it's gonna be a combination of this, and then for them to do this, they're also charging this separate fee. So the total is gonna be $1.8 million. And she goes, okay. The fuck? I know. It's like, wow. Wow. You could buy the Lizzie Borden house. <laughs> That's what you shoved out with your money. <laughs> So she's like, all <laughs> Just right. Just put him in as a reenactor. Give him an axe. Call it good. Right. <laughs> so then as far as um, the jinx is concerned, the, sh the series itself, they put a pin in this. This is where they leave him on trial. And we go over to, we fast forward 10 years at this point. Okay. And we are now at the premiere of the film All Good Things. That's right. Okay. This is directed and produced by Andrew Jarecki, and it's based on the story of Robert Durst and the disappearance of his first wife, Kathy. And after the movie premieres, which didn't do very well, I looked it up. Who was in it? Uh, Kirsten Dunst and Ryan Gosling. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Should have done better. Anyway. Yeah. So it's based on that story. Um, the characters themselves are not named like Robert and Kathy Durst mm -hmm. or whatever. Like they're fictionalized characters. It's but it's based, based on, on it. the story. Yeah. yeah. So after the movie premieres, um, Iman Bowles, who is the distributor for Magnolia Pictures, which funded the, mm -hmm. the All Good Things, he gets a call from Robert Durst. And he says, he answers the phone and he's like, um, is this Iman? And he's like, yeah. Who is this? And he's like, this is Bob Durst or whatever. And he was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so Robert Durst has called him directly because he wants to get in touch with the director, Andrew Jarecki. And that's how the jinx happens. Now, for those who don't know, Andrew Jarecki, who did All Good Things, is also the producer and director for the jinx. So now we're telling the story of how this docuseries happened and how it's happening. Robert Durst gets in touch with Andrew Jarecki and he says that he's seen the movie and he has this idea and he wants to know if it would make sense to do an interview with him about his reaction to the movie. And Jarecki was like, yeah, no, I think that would be a great idea. Of course, I'm not going to turn down an interview with the inspiration for my film. Like, right. that's just not going to happen. So they arrange to meet and they begin filming the jinx, which we are now watching. Right. <laughs> and that is where part one ends. So then we segue into part two. And at this point, they're actually beginning to film the interview portions with Robert Durst. And this one is titled Poor Little Rich Boy, <laughs> which is intended ironically and not yeah. sarcastically. So they're not like, oh, poor little rich boy. It's like, this is a person that had a ton of money and was never happy. And these yeah. are all the reasons why. Like so, foreign emotional stuff. Right. So this is where we start to get the background information on Robert Durst. And so he is the son of Seymour and Bernice Durst. Robert is the oldest. Douglas is three years younger than him. He has another sister that's four years younger than Robert and another brother who is seven years younger than Robert. So four siblings all together. And when Robert is seven years old, his mother dies in what he describes as a violent death. Right. So he said everything was happy with his mom. And then one night his dad, when he's seven years old, pulls him out of bed, takes him to a hall window and points out to his mom standing on a rooftop in her nightgown. And he says, wave to mommy. 
And so he waves to mommy and everything like that, which this actually gives me the creeps because he continues to call his mom mommy. Yes. He never actually refers to his mom as mom. He right. calls her mommy the entire time. Right. And it gives me the heaps. That was my first inkling that I'm like, oh, there's a screw loose up there. Yeah. He also does this weird like blinking thing. Yeah. And I'm like, is this a nervous tick? Like, I don't understand. Like, is this a tell? Or like, what's going on? Is it Morse code? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Blink twice if you need help. <laughs> so he's like, you know, he waves to his mom or whatever. And then he goes back to bed. And then he said he hears the maid yelling. She's off the roof. And then he says when the reports come out, the reports are that she fell off the roof. And the three adults in the house, the maid, his dad, and whoever else, release the story that she fell off the roof. And he said, I don't know why they wouldn't say she committed suicide. So we're not sure hmm. what the nature of that is, but it also doesn't really elaborate on the fact why his dad takes them out of bed to wave goodbye to mommy and then just lets her jump off the roof. He's like, all right, see you later. Like, if you're going to do it, do it. Like, he doesn't do anything to try and stop the it, hell? which is just bizarre. And then they just kind of like move past that. And I'm like, yeah, that's weird. Hello, I need to know more. Like, we really should have done a deeper dive here, but... That's ultimately where they leave That's it. That's suspicious. Yeah. And my assumption is, and he's like, I don't know why they didn't report it as a suicide or whatever. Was the but mom like on, dancing on a rooftop or something? No, like, no, not the way it was why like reenacted. Why would you reenacted. say go wave to your mom? So Anyways. in my opinion though, um, I don't know about everything leading up to it, but afterwards, as far as like the reports are concerned, Seymour later on is very concerned about media attention, unnecessary hmm. media attention. So my guess is he told reporters and everything that she fell off the roof to minimize the media fallout that comes from her committing suicide sure. and all the digging that would have gone into that. Yeah, like the why, who. Yeah, yeah he yeah, does yeah. not care for the media at all. So... Um, Robert Durst says his dad is absent from work or absent from the home, busying himself with work mm -hmm. after that. And he like runs away and he's just kind of like this whatever out of control kid. Um, but eventually he grows up and he meets Kathy when he's about 30 years old. And Kathy is described as pretty and smart. Um, her mom is interviewed for the film and her mom said that meeting Robert Durst was the worst thing that could have ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no kidding. Yeah. He said, um, Robert Durst said that Kathy got along with most people and was sh social and outgoing, which was perfect for him because he didn't get along with anyone and most people didn't get along with him, which I was like, Ooh. red flag. Yeah. They fell hard for each other, fell in love. They moved in together after two dates. And then they eventually get married. At this point, he's living up in Vermont. He has opened up a health food store that he wants to run. He doesn't want to be part of the family business. But increased pressure from his dad forces him to sell his store. And then they end up moving or basically getting a penthouse in New York so he can run the family business rather than live the life in seclusion in Vermont doing his own thing. Right. So there's some resentment there. At this point, Forbes estimates the family was worth $880 million. Back in the day. Right. Right. Today... The Durst organization is worth $8.1 billion. B-b-b-billion. Yeah. That's crazy. And that was actually also a couple years ago, so it could have changed by now. But, um, they have a lot of money. 
<laughs> they talk about like this disconnect between Robert and reality common people <laughs> yeah <laughs> because he's used to like all this money and everything like that so he's like really rude to kathy's family and he's like i just don't want to like hang out with what am i going to do hanging out with normal people or like with poor people yeah basically yeah. it was like beneath him and he yeah. very much had that attitude that it was beneath him so he like mistreated her family and like really embarrassed her because he was just huh fucking rude to people right because he was like i don't have time for you commoners or whatever and so he andrew jarecki asks him at one point like if you had the chance to talk to kathy's mom today what would you say and he's like i'm sorry for mistreating you you seem like you're good people um i'd also say that i'm complicit in your daughter not being here so we're like hmm. in what way elaborate Tell me please. more <laughs> so, <laughs> go on so Kathy had told her friend the day she disappeared that if something happened to her to look into Bob. Yeah. And her friend was interviewed and her friend was like, I just had no idea what she was alluding to. Like I had no idea. I was like, of course, Kathy, of course, Kathy. But it just, it never occurred to me. And I was like, if my friend tells what? me if I go missing... I'd what be you like, mean? you're not spending another night in that place. You're yeah, coming over. I'm like, what do you mean mm -hmm. that never occurred to you that she's telling you that for a reason? Like, oh, yeah. Oh my God. Um, just want to make a mental note that if your friend tells you that, it doesn't mean nothing. No. No. Okay. Glad we're all clear. PSA over. Thank so, you. So funny enough, Kathy goes missing that night in 1982. Jesus Christ. So, um, detectives are brought in when Can you Robert... imagine? Hmm. Let me think if she gave me any clues about where she would be. <laughs> what would have happened to her? She's like, oh my God. <laughs> oh wait, she told me exactly who did it. So, so detectives are brought in and when Robert reports her missing and she's last seen on Sunday night and mm -hmm. he reports her missing on Thursday. The fuck? Um, they had been married nine years at this point and she's a medical student. This is important in part two. So keep this in mind that she is a medical student because this okay. is going to come into play in part two. And I'll revisit this in part two just to remind everybody like Thank refresher. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Part two of the podcast. Right. She is on the second episode right now. Yes. Thank you. So his account of the, that evening is that. She had come home from being at her friend's house where she had said, if something happens to me, like, take a look at this or whatever. She was drunk. She wanted to take a train back into the city that night because they're up at their house in Vermont. She wants to take a train back into the city that night because she has school the next day because she's a medical student. Right. So he takes her and drops her off at the train stop. He then goes home and on his way home, he stops and see his, sees his neighbor. So they go out and they have a drink together. And then he calls her from a payphone to make sure that she made it home okay. They talk for a little bit. She's home watching TV. The police confirmed this story, said the doorman saw her come in that night and took her up to the penthouse or whatever. And then she calls out of school sick the next day. And then no one ever sees or hears from her again. There's no evidence of foul play, but they do obviously take in some evidence and in Kathy's diary, which they take into evidence, they find journal entries indicating that Robert had grown increasingly violent with her. So she talks about the first time that he slapped her. 
also talks about the first time he punched her in the face. And what they kind of leave out of the film is that this is not just a like, he's like, oh yeah, we would push and shove and wrestle or whatever. Mm. So yeah, there's definitely some violence there, but it like, he kind of like downplays it. The fact of the matter is, is there's actual photo evidence of her face being like beaten in. Oh. So he was like very, very controlling and violent um, and grew even more so. So wow. her friends then at this point, like her friends rally aside from like her one initial friend that's like, I just had no idea or whatever. Like they truly like, <laughs> I mean, they were truly like a force to be reckoned with. So at one point they were like, so you guys became junior detectives. And her friend was like, no, we became senior detectives. Oh. I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. That's Let's right. Make sure you get my title right. Yeah, Thank she you. Was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Put that on a plaque. <laughs> so they like storm in as a troop into the police station. And they were like, you need to look at Robert Durst. He's not being investigated enough. And this is where you need to set your sights. And the police are still like being dismissive about it, not taking notes, whatever. And so the friends are like, fine, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. So at that point they start like their own investigation. So they take that same train into the city and they ask anyone on that train, if they saw that woman that night, because the idea is that, you know, the train is like a frequent in New York, it's a frequent sure. form of transportation. If you're using the train, you use it frequently. You're right. not driving. And usually, because it's public, I mean, it's a common source. Like, yeah. People take the same train. You have routine. Like, routine. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you have a routine. So. so they go through the entire train. Nobody says that they've seen her. They ask nurses at various hospitals if she's there, if she's like a patient or something like that, if like something's happened to her, nobody can identify her. They go to these local reservoirs and they look for tire tracks to see if somebody has driven in and out potentially to dump her somewhere. They document everything they do in these journals. So like they have everything they are keeping track of. Um, Another thing that they do is they go and take the garbage from Bob and Kathy's house. So they do dumpster dives. These are like the kinds of friends you want. Yeah. So they take the garbage from um, Bob and Kathy's house on several occasions. And what they find is that Bob is throwing out her clothes. He's throwing out her makeup. He's throwing out her school books. And they said, it's like he knew she wasn't coming home. Mm. And I'm like, this is interesting. Yeah, very. Then they find a piece of paper in the garbage that says in his handwriting, town dump, bridge, Dig, boat, other, shovel, or question mark, car, truck, wrench. And it's in a list. And they describe it as a list of a to-do list to get rid of a body. (laughs) Um, Yes. And what somebody (laughs) points out is that it's February in Vermont you're not going to be able to use a shovel to dig a hole in Vermont. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. So he has several different like alternatives, if you will. Right. Kathy's family in the meantime is kind of doing their own thing to try and get answers. So they reach out to Seymour Durst and Seymour basically invites them all over to the house and everything like that. It's his daughter-in-law who's missing. Yeah. He says he doesn't know anything, doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't show any ounce of empathy. 
Not like, oh my gosh, I'm so really? sorry. This is happening to you. This must be so scary. Doesn't like really like express any human empathy at all. That's awful. And then the youngest. Even just like, a, like if you know someone one degree like missing right. from you. I'm sorry. Would, okay. I can't believe this is happening. Hmm. Then his youngest son comes home and he comes in. He's like, what's going on? And Seymour's like, oh, they're here. They're looking for help in the disappearance of Kathy or whatever. And his son goes, this discussion's over. And he shuts it down and makes Kathy's family leave. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. It's just like bananas to me. No, that honestly, I would be like, why are we getting kicked out? The fuck are you holding back from me? Yeah. Like, I would call the cops. Be like, I just got kicked out of the Dirt house. Right. When we were just having a, you know, for all intents and purposes, like, a normal dinner. We we're just talking about life and yeah. things going on right now. Why would I get kicked out? What's going on? Yeah. Were they told not to talk? I would have so many questions. I know. So many questions. So then we go back to Bob being interviewed by Andrew Jarecki. And he talks about their relationship and how it developed over time. Background on this before I move into what he actually told, told Andrew Jarecki is there's a lot more to this than they actually put into the documentary. So what I found out later on through additional research is that it's not just what I'm about to tell you. He gave her an allowance and she was only allotted oh. a certain amount of money to spend. And if she wanted to spend more, he would not give her more. He was like, that is your allotted amount and that's all you're going to get. Um, so he controlled her with money. He'd become increasingly violent and abusive. When she told him that she wanted to apply to medical school, he was like really, what's the word I want to use for this? He was really demeaning about it. So Mm. he was like, I mean, you can do that if you want, but like the people that apply for these programs are a lot smarter and they come from a lot better schools. And the chances of you actually being able to do this, like, not very likely because there's just so many people that are going to be better at this than you. Ew. And he doesn't make any, like, he doesn't try and hide that. Those are his words, is that he was like, yeah, I mean, there are people that are applying from so better schools. So he still feels sm- that way. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Because this is 20, 30 years later that right. he's doing these interviews. And so she's growing increasingly unhappy in this relationship. The real tip of the iceberg is when she finds herself pregnant. Now the agreement going into their relationship is that Bob does not want kids. And he said he also agreed that like their relationship became more strained after she got pregnant and she calls him and says, you know, I'm pregnant or whatever. And he says, well, you're getting an abortion. And she says, no, I want to keep it. And he basically said like, You're getting an abortion or if you keep that baby, I am going to divorce you and leaves her basically with no choice of that. And then when he talks about her getting pregnant, he goes, so she comes up pregnant or calls me and tells me you're pregnant. She's pregnant. And I'm like, you're in charge of that stuff. Not me referring to birth control. So basically he's like, it's your fault that you're in this situation and so now you need to take ownership for your mistake in getting pregnant. That's his whole attitude towards the whole thing. And so he says if she doesn't get an abortion, he's going to divorce her. And so her with like no resources or anything like that and he'd like cut her off from any additional money awful. for spending. Yeah. Wasn't paying for her school so she had to take out student loans and everything like that. Even though he has how much freaking money. Right. 
she's like kind of forced into this situation where she's like, okay, I gotta do this. And then she obviously grows resentful because he's controlled her body and told her she has to get an abortion. He's controlled her with finances. He's being mm -hmm. abusive. And so everything kind of goes to a boiling point. But he reasons that he doesn't want kids because he said that he felt it would be a jinx. Huh. Which is the title of our yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Okay. And he said that he knew he wouldn't be a good father, which I can't argue with him on that. We're not saying no, sir. And so Andrew Jarecki says, do you remember the first time you hit her? And he said, no, I don't remember the first time. But he does recall hitting her in general, just not like the first time. And he actually says that they had had a physical altercation the night that she left their house in Salem to go back to the house or go back into the city. So they had had like a physical fight that night. And so when she didn't answer the phone the following day, he wasn't really worried about it because they'd had this fight, but she was also in school mm. or whatever. And they had this whole thing going. Um, then the school calls him and says, you know, she hasn't been in class for several days. Like, where, where is, is your life? Yeah. Right. And so his, he goes to his family, reportedly. He says that he goes to his family and he talks to Douglas and he talks to Seymour and he's like, what should I do? And they are basically like, she probably left you. <laughs> and we don't want the press from this, so don't report it to the police. Because she obviously just left. Because what we come to find out is that she, before she left, had asked him for a divorce his attorney, her attorney, she'd retained a divorce attorney, yeah. had written up an agreement and he had rejected the agreement. Mm -hmm. And so, so let's talk of it. Okay. The Durst organization was like, yeah, no, don't report that. We don't want the media attention. So he said he finally decided to call the police on Thursday after she had been missing. Against his Monday. family's wishes. Yeah. So she'd been missing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday with no contact before he finally calls the police. And I'm sorry, but, like, if I had been missing for four hours, Mikey would have called the police. Yeah. Like, <laughs> four days? No, that That's never would have happened. Time. Yeah. Now, remember he says that his accounts were that they'd had their physical altercation. He had taken her to the train station, dropped her off at the train station. He goes and has a drink with his neighbor and then calls her from a payphone. Okay. The neighbor was interviewed later and he said that he never had drinks with Bob that night. And he wasn't sure why Bob made it up. But he also said that Bob never told him to cover for him. He never clued him in like, hey, by the way, this is a story I told. Like, make sure that you, whatever. He was like, he never told us that he brought us into this whole thing. So he was like blindsided when the police were like, so you wouldn't have drinks, right? I couldn't be mad at the guy and be like, yeah, you're right. I didn't ask you to cover up for me. No, I was just like, you. that's how you know that's not your best friend. Because like my best friend, I'd be like, yes, I was with you. And then. Completely separate interview. Yup. We were together. Yup. Yep. They're like, so you guys went, yes. Yeah. Yes. We went, yup. Yep. Whatever you were going to say, the answer we is yes. We went to the movie theaters. And like, <laughs> Brian and Tori in the last story. Yep. Stick to the goddamn story. Stick to the story. Ah, <sighs> man. So, that's funny. Yeah, the nope, neighbor's he like. he didn't ask me for an alibi. <laughs> yeah, he was like, we had no idea. Um. The detective said, like, yeah, it's an inconsistency, but you couldn't prove which party was actually lying. And I was like, the one with more at stake. That's yeah. the one that's lying. 
He is. You fucking think? So Andrew Jarecki asked Bob about this, and Bob admits blatantly to lying. He said that he told them this because he was hoping the detectives would buy his story and, quote, make everything go away. So Jarecki's like, well, what do you mean by make everything go away? And he said that he never thought the detectives would actually try and verify his story, that they would just accept his alibi and take it at face value and they wouldn't look for any further motive or consider him a suspect and they would take their investigation back to New York and leave him out of it. Wow. I was like, you really know nothing about how this works, do you? He's completely out of touch. And then he also admits to lying to Andrew Jarecki about calling her from the payphone that night. He said that he never talked to her. what? Yeah. He said that he never talked to her on Sunday after he dropped her off at the train station. He dropped her off and never talked to her again. Now, later on, when they go back through the different reports, he gives three different stories. First, he calls her from the house, his house, uh-huh. calls and talks to her. Second, he calls her from the payphone and calls and talks to her also at the house. And the third, yeah. he calls her from like the bar or something, wherever he went to Where have drinks spread? with his neighbor. So he gave all these different accounts, but what we come to find out 20 years later is that none of it's true and that he never actually called her. These are all very elaborate too. Mm-hmm. Like he's, a, lot, a lot of details. He's quite the storyteller as yeah. we're going to find out. Huh. So he basically, I mean, at the end of the day, there's no crime scene. There's no body. She's just disappeared gone yeah nothing and so what about the doorman at the penthouse we're gonna get to that okay so the case goes cold but it's left as a missing person case not as a murder investigation and that is where we enter into part three okay now we're going 20 years later and her case has resurfaced a guy is arrested for exposing himself to multiple women gross yeah you're a pervert in new york uh i don't remember where i think it was in vermont or something like that and he's taken into custody and he says listen i got a deal for you guys really and he's like i have information on an old murder that took place in a salem house and he says that kathy was killed in that house by her husband robert and never ever went to the train station. That she died in that house and never made it out. So the cops go to the old lake house that was once owned by Bob and Kathy. It's now been sold and there are new people there that sure. live there. And they're like, um, excuse me. Can I come in? Real quick. Just real quick. Yeah. <laughs> and so the owners are like, yeah, sure. Totally. Go ahead. And so they go back into a closet they start removing a shelf remove like a wall and everything and there's like a crawl space back there that leads into a hidden room oh i missed this okay well this is new to me let's do it okay but they come up empty-handed there's nothing in the room okay (laughs) divers come out and they search the lake they don't find anything but what we do find out is that the house was never originally searched and neither was the lake Really? So 20 years have gone by since the disappearance of Kathy, and they never actually searched the property where she was last known to be, which was just bananas to me. Wow. The Westchester police officially reopened the case and began re-interviewing everybody because they're like, wow, there's a lot of gaps here. Yeah. Like the whole thing. Yeah. And so the friends of Kathy go, listen, you know who you need to talk to. (laughs) 
is you need to talk to Susan Berman because that's Bob's best friend. If anyone knows, she knows. Now, what we learn is that Susan Berman had a lot in common with Bob. They both came from rich families, but she came from a rich Las Vegas mob family. Her dad was in the mob, which is my literal dream. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, growing up so badly, wanted to be part of a mob family. You have no idea. When the Gaudis, like those kids had like their reality show, I was like, dear Lord, please make me part of that. (laughs) My mom used to work with a woman who was married into the mob and she was like, nobody was ever allowed to exit that family. And she was granted the right to divorce out of the family because the family liked her so much and hated her husband. Oh, damn. She was the only person they ever let like actually willingly go. Yeah. Susan was 21 years old when she learned that her dad had been in the mob. So she had no idea growing up. She was drawn to Bob because of his power and money, said that like he really resembled her dad in those aspects and felt like he needed her, whatever that meant. Yeah, this doesn't sound healthy either. No, I was like, somebody had feelings somewhere. Um, <laughs> like Freudian so, feelings. Exactly. <laughs> truly though yeah um and then what we find out is that susan's kind of the one that orchestrated everything after kathy's disappearance she for the lack of a better term becomes bob's spokesperson so they start going back through all this information they talk to the school and well there's actually like no evidence that she called out of school that day or talked to anybody Somebody just told the dean that she did, and the dean said that to the media. And so what we realize is that there's no evidence that Kathy actually called and spoke to anybody at the school. But Susan talked to the dean and said, we've been, you know, like... Susan called out of school. Right. Yeah, she talked to somebody and called out of school or whatever. So he's like, oh, okay, well, she called out of school and tells that to the media because Susan tells it to him as fact. And nobody ever bothers to double check and say, hey, who who took this phone call? Right. Yeah. And then what they realize is that they had never released to the media that the doorman saw Kathy coming and going that night. Uh The police didn't release that piece of information susan berman told it to the media and so it was accepted as fact nobody double checked anything and that just became the story that susan told the media and everybody just took at face value so she's like she's smart obviously yes yes and so not saying i like her but she is smart mm mm-hmm so it's during this second investigation that they discover for the first time that Kathy had hired a divorce attorney. They didn't know that the first time. And so then it comes to light that Bob had rejected the attorney's request for divorce. And now we're realizing that there is no evidence that she ever left the Salem house. The doorman had not seen her. He gave two different accounts. One was to the police where he was like, oh, yeah, I I took her up there. And what they think is that he was paid off to say that. But later on, when he was interviewed by a private investigator, he's like, I no, that never happened. I never saw her that night. Wow. So there's no solid evidence that she'd ever actually come into the house or to the apartment that night. 
Um, and as far as anybody's concerned, she didn't leave the house, but there was definitely like evidence that she had been there and they were trying to work out their divorce or whatever. And he just was not having it. Hmm. So the detectives don't believe she ever actually made it onto the train. There's no evidence that not. she did. The detectives also note that the day that he went or the day that he reported her missing and went to the police station, he left his car at home. Uh-huh. So he doesn't take it into the city because he goes into New York to report her missing. He doesn't report him to his local to police his department. Local. He reports to hers based on where she quote unquote would have been. Hmm. So he leaves his car and takes the train. And there's a theory that he left his car because she was in the trunk and he needed to dispose of the body and he didn't want to have his car searched. Of course. So phone records show that the Durst organization received three collect calls Tuesday after she disappeared from Shipbottom, New Jersey. She disappears on Sunday. He reports mm -hmm. her missing on Thursday. But on Tuesday, these calls come in from New Jersey. They were from a laundromat. And the people who worked at the Durst organization said only two people made collect calls to the offices. And that was right. Seymour and Bob Durst. Right. Now, they obviously don't believe that Seymour, with all of his billions of dollars, was hanging out in Shipbottom, New Jersey at a laundromat. But this is exactly something that Bob might do. Andrew Jarecki asked Robert why he called collect, like why that was his thing. And he said that he always used to do it so he didn't have to pay for the call. He was like, let Seymour pay for it. Which I'm kind of <laughs> like, why do you call your dad by his first name, but you call your mom mommy? Like, we have some issues here. Yeah. Andrew Jarecki says to him, you know, like, we... This was the account that only two people used to make collect calls and you're one of them. And so can you explain, like, were you calling from Shipbottom, New Jersey? And he's like, no. He's like, do you know anybody that would have been? He was like, uh, yeah, there was someone that was living in a beach house one summer that, like, over, like, spring and summer, they used to call from a collect phone all the time. Like, I remember that being a thing. And I was like, I don't remember pay phones being in beach houses, but Okay. Yeah, that's not a solid story. Now, Shipbottom, New Jersey is known for having, like, these vast forested areas. And this was a spot that notoriously was used by mob bosses to dump bodies. Hmm. Wonder where he got that idea. <laughs> I mean... Re-enter Susan. Sorry, the eye rolls in this room right now, guys. A lot. <laughs> We're just looking at each other like, come on. So Susan, she had been living in New York, but eventually moved out to Los Angeles. And she's living in LA when the case is reopened. And the police contact her and they're like, hey, we've been told that you're the, you're the one to interview. Yeah. Like, we'd like to come talk to you. Would you know? So they set up a date to like meet and talk. And Susan reportedly has a conversation with Bob, according to him, where he's like, the police want to interview me. And he's like, okay. And he's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's fine. Um, but weirdly enough, Susan ends up dead before the interview ever happens. Oh, shit. Yes. So on Christmas Eve of 2000, she misses her stepson's call to wish her a Merry Christmas. She also never shows up for dinner at her friend's house. A 911 call comes in because... Her neighbors had found Susan's dog out, like, running Outside around. the house? Yeah. Okay. And so they go over to Susan's house. 
knock on the door no one answers the car's in the driveway so they go around and they find her back door standing open and her dog's out in the yard hmm. and they're like well that's weird so yeah. they call into 911 and the Good police neighbors. come over to check yep so they also find the back door open so they enter the residence and they find susan on the floor of her bedroom with a gunshot wound to the head. Oh, shit. There's no evidence of a struggle, no forced entry, nothing's missing. So whoever killed her was led in by Susan. Mm. Now, Susan is described as kind of a paranoid person. She would not just let anybody into her apartment or house that she yeah, didn't she know. Yeah, she has mob ties, so she knows exactly. Better. What they also don't mention in this documentary is that Robert was, she had told people that Robert was planning to come out and visit her around the holidays. Oh. And there is evidence that he was in California during this time. They just haven't been able to place him in L.A. Son of a bitch. Yes. So, everyone was kind of surprised to find out that Robert Durst was not a suspect. LAPD was looking into mob connections instead. Because she was working on a TV project at the time. Talking about the mob's days in Las Vegas. And so they were like, oh, this is a mob hit. And some of her family was interviewed and they were like, yeah, this is classic mob gunshot to the head. Nothing rattled or anything like that. The idea is just Nothing like get stolen. rid of somebody. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, this is traditional mob killing. But then shortly after she dies, the Beverly Hills Police Department get a letter. And on the letter of the envelope, Beverly Hills is spelled wrong. It's in all capital block letters, and it's spelled B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. Beverly is spelled L-Y, not right. L-E-Y. Um, and inside is a note that reads 1527 Benedict Canyon Cadaver. Well, that's to the point. The postmark is for the day before the body is discovered. Oh, shit. And when they do analysis of the body, they yeah. find that she's been dead for 24 hours when she's found. Oh. So it was postmarked the day that she died. Right. Now, they assume that whoever sent the letter was probably the one that killed her. But... They obviously cared about her because they didn't want the body to just sit there and decompose or whatever. Nobody find her dogs. Nobody, like, do anything about it. Yeah. And this is not very mob-like. Like, the mob's not like, we'll no. just send a letter and, like, it'll be fine. Let you know where it is. <laughs> yeah. No, they don't, don't they don't do that. So, Andrew Jarecki presents a copy of the letter to Bob and he's like, what do you notice about this? And he's like, it's on all block letters. Like, somebody's trying to hide their signature. Beverly is misspelled. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so he identifies several things about the letter. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to this more in part two, because okay. this is where things really blow to pieces. Gotcha. But just keep this in, in your back pocket for okay. now. What we find out is Susan is behind on rent. She's having like some significant money problems. She's kind of described as being in a desperate situation, and she's already kind of a good manipulator. They find this ledger of people that have lent her money. And on the ledger, it indicates that Robert Durst has sent her $50,000. Whoa. So there's a theory that she may have said something to him about like, listen, my silence will come at a cost. Absolutely. This is Absolutely. How much. Yeah. Pay it. We'll be good. So despite the fact that Bob was placed in California during this time... 
he misses the funeral, which everybody's like, well, he's here. He's definitely going to come. For he his best friend's for his best funeral. Friend. But then he starts, like, <clears throat> calling all of her different friends. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. They're like, this is really weird because he's, like, not a social person. Like, he's not just going to call and talk to people. Random, right. The other thing to note is that Bob, if you watch the documentary, is constantly on his cell phone. And he's constantly checking voicemails. Hmm. doesn't really go like an hour or so without like checking voicemails, checking his phone, talking to somebody. But during this time, his phone never once pings anything. It's like it's off for three days. So it never pings in the area of LA, which is interesting. Smart and interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the other alliances that he kind of makes during this time is with Susan's stepson. And Sarab is like, he's very trusting of Bob. He's kind of like, you know, I know everybody thinks he's a suspect and there's all these different things, but coincidences happen and blah, blah, blah. And somebody's like, well, Bob has a lot of money. Listen, did he offer you any money? Yeah. And he's like, I mean, well, so, so what had happened was, and he like oh. starts like stumbling over himself. And basically he says that, Bob had offered to send him back to college for four years. That's he paid right. him $25,000 a year for four years to go back to school. And they were supposed to meet and have dinner one night, but Bob misses the dinner. And they said, why does he miss dinner? And he said, well, because he's on the run for murder and dismemberment of a body. In Texas. So now we're back up to... Texas. Yeah, now we're back up to Texas. And I'm not going to say current because it's not current. But now we're back up to Texas. And Bob admits that he fully intended to run away as soon as he posted bail. He was like, I'm out, I'm free, peace. So he, that's where it ends as far as part three goes. And part four, we move into the Texas murder trial. That's why we needed to do two parts because yep. this is getting to be a lot. How long are we in right now? 120. This is going to be a long one. Yeah. You guys like the long ones, so yeah. <laughs> this we is for you. So that leads us into part four, which is now the Texas murder trial. So this should have been a slam dunk for prosecutors. All the evidence points to Bob. And again, this is regarding the murder of his neighbor, Morris Black. Right. There's okay. cuts in the towel. There's blood. Right. There's what else was there? Like blood underneath the tiles. And he's carrying the dismemberment weapon in his car. Right. Like... Hello. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, literally slam dunk. They're like, this is going to be easy. Like, Oops. slam dunk on a five-foot net. Yeah. All evidence points to Bob. I know all the Bob. basketball things now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Story time Played for later. one game of horse, and all of a sudden we're NBA. One, one game that I won, so I am, like, 1-0, and oh, and I'm, I'm, like, super proud of that. Use Thank pick you. and roll correctly, and then I'll, like, um, I'll give it to you. I... Pick and roll no. past her. Okay, bye. And <laughs> that's slam yeah. dunked it on the ball thing. It's like Rachel when they're like, <laughs> use it in a sentence. And she was like, Emma, just. <laughs> okay. Sorry, guys. Uh, so. We're um, into part four. Texas murder. Yes. So it should have been a slam dunk. All evidence points to Bob. He went on the run right after he was released. Um, yeah, because that's not suspicious either. He's suspected in the murder of Susan Berman. He's suspected in the disappearance of his wife, Kathy. Like, there could not be a clearer suspect. Yeah, this really, which is part of the reason that he's arrested and charged with it so quickly. So the jurors interviewed for this project 
said that it seemed clear that it was murder just based on how the body was disposed of. They well, were like, no shit. Yeah. Like <laughs> if you didn't murder the guy, you're not going to dismember him. Like, yeah, that's just not a thing. What stuns everyone is that the trial goes underway. And remember, he's got his dream team. Like he's hired right. $1.8 million worth of defense attorneys or whatever. And Bob takes the stand in his own trial, which is completely (laughs) out of the norm. Because if you know anything, that's literally like the worst thing you can do. Absolutely. Unless you know how to repeat a lot over and over, I plead the fifth. Right. That should be all you say. Right. So they're like, okay, tell us how, how all of this happens. So they said on October 31st of 2000, he opens up a newspaper and he finds out that they're reopening the case into Kathy's disappearance. And so he's like, well, shit, I got to get out of here then. So he decides that he needs to disappear. And he goes to Galveston and disguises himself, intending to never reassume the identity of Robert Durst. The defense actually blames everything on Janine Pirro. And it's like, if she had, what they say, if she had just kept her mouth shut, none of this would have ever happened. And what they say is that by her, like, reopening this case, she essentially drives him out of New York. And he never would have met Morris Black. And Morris Black would have never ended up dead if Janine Pirro had just stopped asking questions about the disappearance of Kathy. Which I'm like, okay, no. You don't just, like, look the other way in the disappearance of somebody just so, like, he might not take off and might not kill somebody else. The suspicious disappearance of someone, of all things. Right. I'm like, I have just, this is bananas to me. And they're like, she just did this to further her own career. And it's a distraction tactic. The idea is just to, like, completely take away from Bob Durst in general. The One of the jurors said, she's like, well, yeah, I mean, like, obviously he was just facing all this pressure from Janine Pirro and all this is happening. And I can't really fault him from wanting to getting away or wanting to get away from that. buying this? And I'm like, you can't fault him for going on the run the second that they start to look into the disappearance of his wife again. Actually, that's That's all you you can do. That's all you can do is fault him. And she's like, yeah, no, I mean, anybody would want to get away from that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Anyone that's culpable. Exactly. So he goes to Galveston and he decides to disguise himself as a woman. And he presents himself as mute so nobody will recognize his voice. (laughs) And he starts talking about how he goes out and buys this wig. And he goes to Walmart and buys a purse and blah, blah, blah. And the jury finds that really funny. And they all start to laugh or whatever. Oh, my God. And, you know, the bench or whatever. They're all, like, stunned. Holy shit, they actually like this This guy. This is working. Yeah. Like, they actually like him. And so Morris Black is described as, like, the cranky old man type. Like, the sit on the porch and yell at people walking by type. Okay. Like, get off my lawn, you damn kids. Exactly. Okay. So Bob said that they became friends, that Morris Black eventually became to know who he actually was, that he didn't maintain the disguise living in that apartment or anything like that, that they would hang out frequently. He had asked Bob about it at one point, and Bob told him who he was or whatever, and just said, like, he just was trying to get away. And Morris Black was like, yeah, no, totally get that. And So he knew his true identity. Yes. Okay. And probably the only person in Galveston that knew that. Probably. Okay. He lived in an area of Galveston, they said, where people went to disappear. 
nobody's really taking a whole lot of notice in it. If you just keep your head down and keep quiet, nobody's going to ask you any questions. Gotcha. So he does say that he owns a gun during this time that he's living there, but everybody in Texas owns guns, so that's not really all that odd. But he said that one day, Morris received an eviction notice. And he was over at Bob's apartment, had come over to Bob's apartment, was talking about this eviction notice. Bob said he went to the bathroom and he heard a gunshot. He came out and Morris is holding a gun. And he's like, what are you doing? And he said I'd sh- he'd shot the eviction notice. Like thrown it up like in the, the air and paper? shot it. Yeah. Investigators never find a bullet hole that matches this story, by the way. So okay. there's no evidence that this actually occurred. And so Bob kicked Morris out of his apartment. Was like, you need to go. You need to leave. So the day of the murder, shortly after, Bob comes home to find Morris sitting in his apartment. This is, uh, and I want to clarify, hmm. this is Bob's story on the stand. When he took the stand. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. He says Morris is sitting in a chair in his kitchen in his apartment, and he's holding a gun. Now, what's important As to- As one does. <laughs> right. <laughs> Now, if you know anything about Texas, you know the last thing you should do is enter somebody else's home. And the other last thing that you should do is enter somebody's home holding a gun. Yeah. So, background that they don't explain in the documentary that we really could have all benefited from. Texas is a stand-your-ground state. Mm. Bob explains it as an anything-goes state, but that's not what it's actually called. It's a stand-your-ground <laughs> state. So the idea is that if somebody enters your home without your permission, basically, I mean, anything does go type thing. Like you have the right to act as you see fit to protect yourself and your home. Yep. This is the defense's case is that Morris has broken into his apartment, is sitting in his apartment waiting for Bob when he comes home and he's holding a gun. Now, because hmm. this is happening conveniently in Bob's apartment, Bob is legally within his right to do whatever he would like at this point. Right. But Bob's story is that the two of them get into a physical altercation and they're struggling for the gun. Bob says that the gun goes off by accident and shoots Morris and kills him. And that's how he winds up dead. Now, Ballistics show that two shots were fired. Bob can't explain the second. And he says there wasn't a second, even though there was a gunshot hole in the wall indicating there was a second. A neighbor says there was two gunshots. Still can't explain it. All he says is that the gun went off once and it was by accident. Okay. And Morris is dead. Now, despite his story of, like, how they were friends and everything like that, they can find no evidence that there was ever a friendship. Nobody ever sees them together. Nobody ever sees them go out together. Nobody ever sees them going back and forth between each other's apartments. There's Weird. no evidence that any of this ever happened. Okay. But what they do know is that Morris Black did indeed become aware of who Robert Durst was. Oh. He went to the library every single day. And there was probably a chance that at some point they had had that exchange over what his name was. Sure. And he went to the library every day and used the free internet there. Okay. And he would have gone to the library and looked up who Robert Durst was and how much money he was worth. And there's a theory that Morris then used this information to blackmail Robert and said, I know you're on the run. And I know they're looking into your wife's disappearance, and I'm going to call and tell them exactly where you are unless you pay up. 
Yeah. And Bob Durst was like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Because much like Susan Berman trying to blackmail him, he doesn't much care for that. Right. So there is that possibility, and this is the motive that is presented. But where things get complicated is the whole addition of the dismemberment. Now... Yeah, because it's one thing to do, like, accidental, in your ground state, da 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 and you accidentally shoot someone, call 911. The huge mistake that the prosecution made in this case is because the murder was so, like, you know, they were going to be able to get the death penalty for that. They didn't need the dismemberment. They didn't need the whole disposing or, like, tampering of evidence thing. They only charged him of murder. They didn't charge him they with any other crimes. Right. So... Because they could have stopped at murder. He's confirming he's... Yeah, they were like, we don't need he's it. He's saying he shot yeah. him. But they just... They brought it all as a package. And that's where the holes started. Right. So oh. what they should have done, they should have charged him with murder, dismemberment of a body. Right. And tampering and concealing of evidence. Yep. But they were like, we don't need that. We're going to get the full max with murder itself. We'll save ourselves the time and work on the other ones and just charge them with the murder. What wow. then becomes the defense's strategy is, sorry, this is a stand your ground state. He was in Bob's apartment, mm -hmm. which is true because that is the... Murder scene. Yeah. Anything goes. And what happens to the body afterwards doesn't matter. Right. So. Because they're not charging him for that specifically. Exactly. So they're like, oh, we have to prove that it wasn't like murder. So Bob gets oh. up there and he's like, yeah. So he obviously, the gun went off. He dies by accident. Yep. They're like, did you dismember the body? And he says, yeah. So he's like, yep, On I dismember the, the body. Because he didn't want to get pinned for murder. So what he says <laughs> is that he didn't want the police to be called because then they would find out his real identity and they would know that he was living in Galveston, Texas. And there was an investigation going sure. on in the disappearance of his wife. And he'd never in a million years be able to convince anyone that he didn't murder this guy. So he is forced to dismember the body in order to dispose of it. So that way it can't get pinned to him. And he wow. openly admits this in court. So he says what he does is he goes and gets really high and really drunk. And he spends however long dismembering the body. They ask him how long it took. He says he doesn't know. They ask him where he started. He doesn't know. They ask him if the knives get dull. He says he doesn't know. And so he doesn't answer if any the of the- knives get dull? Yeah. Because they're kind of- Ew. Yeah. yeah, I know. Because they're trying to like create like this shock and like this right. gross feeling in the jury. But he's nonchalant about it. Yeah, he's, he's just, just like, not answering. He's like, I don't remember. But I did it. Right. So he won't answer any of the details because he's not going to let the jury feel anything about it. It's really smart. Mm -hmm. So he's like, Fuck. I don't remember. So he says that he dismembers the body and then he puts the limbs in the trash bags because obviously the body is just too heavy for him to carry by himself. So he has to dismember him. And he puts the limbs in the different garbage bags and then puts the torso in the suitcase and he takes all the pieces to the bay and he dumps them. So he says, I did dismember him. I did dump him in the bay, but I did not murder him. That was an accident. <laughs> and the jurors are like, well, if he's so honest about the dismemberment, then obviously yep. he's being honest about the rest. Yep. 
In fact, he even admits to going back to the bay the next day and seeing the fact that all these things have floated to the surface. And so he grabs one bag out of the bay, which is the head, and he takes off with it because if they don't have the face, they can't ID the body. Oh my God. And that's why the head is never and recovered. he admits to that too? Yes. On? Oh, wow. Yep. He admits to it. So... The jury is then left with the strict instructions that they are not to deliberate based on what happens to the body after he died. Basically, they need to ignore the dismemberment piece. They need to focus on the manner of death alone and disregard entirely what happens to the body afterwards because their purpose is not to decide what happened to the body afterwards, why the body was dismembered, anything like that. Right. Basically, their only thing to, that they have to decide is the manner in which he died. And everything after that fact doesn't matter. Wow, that's a huge, huge opening left open by the prosecution. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Additionally, when the defense of or when the defense of self-defense is raised, so when your defense attorneys say sure. basically this is done as self-defense. It is up to the prosecution to prove that it wasn't that it wasn't self-defense. And they asked the detectives on the stand if there was any evidence of this not being self-defense. Not being self-defense. Uh-huh. And they say no. Oh. Wow. So the jury deliberates for several days. And the jurors are interviewed afterwards and said during the whole deliberation, there were only three guilty votes. Wow. And one by one, they turned the guilty votes. The last holdout was a a woman that was described as a good Christian woman who couldn't look past the dismemberment. And she was like, that ain't normal. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, that is not. And the other juror was like, but that doesn't really matter. Like, we're not supposed to decide on that. What we have to decide is how he died, not what happens afterwards. And so they're able to flip all the votes and he is acquitted of murder. Despite the fact that he took the stand and said, yes, he died because of a struggle that we had. Yes, I dismembered him. Yes, I dumped his body. They're like, yeah, no, that was definitely an accident. It was self-defense. You know what? That's so interesting because we've talked about this before. Like when you're in a jury room or you're in a jury, your your job is to deliberate and find a charge guilty or not guilty on very specific things. Yes. And the prosecution has to be very specific on what they want you to look at. Right. And this is the prime example mm-hmm. of the murder. Right. Or the way that he died. Was it murder or not? Mm-hmm. And whether tampering with evidence, dismemberment. If they don't bring those charges they don't forward. Bring them up, he could absolutely have been found guilty of all those things. But because he was never charged mm-hmm. with them, it, holy They crap. become no. irrelevant. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's like, very specific because, again, once you're told to go deliberate... Someone comes in and reads all through the thing again. The foreperson reads through all the charges and what is being asked. It's honestly brilliant because, I mean, literally this case could not have been easier. No. He's found with the thing, with the bow saw. Like, he has it. 
it's that all took place in his apartment he admits to it right and that's why you pay 1.8 million dollars for a defense absolutely the defense was really smart in saying no absolutely take the stand because guess what they're not charging you with you know yeah b c and d they're only charging a and And this is texas and you can do whatever you want in your own apartment absolutely and let them prove me wrong which they couldn't yeah because the the, a dead person can't speak so he couldn't say it wasn't self-defense Holy bonkers. Like, I that's know. That's crazy. It's, I, the technicalities. And that is the um, the lawyer from Texas, who's the one that represented Waco, mm-hmm. is his defense attorney for his current trial. Oh. Even though he's in his 80s and he has a heart condition. Wow. I was like... And he was, like, the one that really, like, slam dunked this one. Yeah. Like, he's... For the defense. Yeah. It right. was him that pointed out, like... You have to prove that it wasn't self-defense. And with that, it was like, that was it. Done. Like, sign sealed, delivered. Right. So then we're going to cut back now to Andrew Jarecki interviewing Bob. And this is, you know, them talking about the trial. And this is when we get our first hot mic. Now, if you know what a hot mic is, it's when you're wearing a microphone and you forget you're wearing a microphone. And you get all these, like, different little sound bites that you're not supposed to get, which is just, like, my favorite thing in the whole world. Yes. And why we're here in the first place and why he's on trial right now. So, so Jarecki asked if he lies on the stand and he said he didn't, but he may have omitted some details. He said the oath is to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And he said he's instructed by his attorneys to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. But if you leave some details out and you don't tell the whole truth, that might not be the worst thing in the whole world. And so he talks about, you know, like, oh, I may have left some things out that would have made me look bad out of context or whatever. But I whatever. didn't tell them. But I, they yeah. didn't know, so whatever. And then Andrew's like, let's take a break. And he's like, okay. So then we cut to Bob, and he's sitting in his interview chair, and he starts whispering to himself. And he says, I did not knowingly, purposefully lie. And Almost he's like a mantra. Yeah, so he's like... I did not knowingly purposefully lie. And he's like repeating it to himself a couple times. And he goes, I did not knowingly purposefully intentionally lie. I did make mistakes, but I did not knowingly lie. Mm -hmm. And so then his lawyer comes over and he goes, you're mic'd. They can hear everything that you just said. Mm -hmm. And he's like, we can't talk right now, but you are mic'd. Shut the fuck up, basically. Yep. yep. (laughs) And His he's lawyers like, in the room, just so you guys understand. Like, yeah. there's, there's two. They would never let him other. interview without. Yeah, no. They didn't want him to do the interviews. Oh, I didn't know that. No, they told him not to. But, but he wanted to talk. Yeah, it was his idea. He's Get when they called. Off his chest. Yeah. He's when they called. Yep. Yeah, the thing to remember about this, in part two, this is all gonna blow to pieces, and this is entirely gonna blow up in his face. And this, him reaching out to Andrew Jarecki and being like. I have an idea for you. Let's do a movie is the reason that he's on trial again today. Huh. Okay. So it really backfires because he basically hires these guys to follow him and do this whole thing. And now he's back on trial for murder. Okay. As a result. So his lawyer comes over and is like, shut up. Everyone can hear you. And he goes, oh, I'm just, I'm just practicing like not what to say, but how to say it. He's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to figure out, like, how to get away with this or whatever. I'm just trying to figure out how to phrase it in a way that makes sense. 
And that's where we are going to end part one. Is he's just been hot mic'd. Yep. Coaching himself into how to get away with the fact that he may or may not have just lied on the stand during the murder trial that he was acquitted for in Texas. <laughs> not purposefully or intentionally, though. <laughs> purposefully, intentionally, knowingly lie. Right. So. So we will pick this up next week. If you haven't done so already, or have, beat me to it, and I like I am going to do it tonight. I'm gonna go watch at least again parts five and, and five six. And six. Because now I am caught up one through four. And five and six is where things truly get bananas. Because at that point, we're operating in real time, quote unquote. So everything that's happening in five and six is happening while the jinx is being filmed. So. Current. Yeah. Yeah. So he ghosts them at one point. Can't really figure it out. And then some more hot mic happens. And a lot of things come to light here. Yeah. So things get really interesting very okay, quickly. Okay, okay. Now I'm excited to go see it. I was yeah. telling Kenzie, we took a small break that um, I'm like super into this whole story now because she put it in a way that I could follow. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought I was at like a two body count. I didn't know that we were at three. Yes. Um, so at this point, we're I mean, at technically three. we're at two because Kathy's body Kathy's has never, never been found. found. But yes, but let's just call it three. She's putting it in a way that I could understand better. Uh, well, you, you didn't even doing... know Morris was no, a guy. <laughs> no, you're doing such a good job. Thank so you. Because it's a lot to keep track of. Yeah. So I am going to run and watch. Uh, five and six tonight so i encourage you all to do the same Mm -hmm. if you don't have hbo it is subscription service um pay the 15 bucks for one month actually you know what you get a free one week trial one week trial sign up for the one week trial watch this watch the flight attendant and watch the undoing (laughs) and then cancel it you'll be fine so that's what I would recommend. Um, but yeah, watch five and six before we jump into the next one. So you guys are all ready for how at least the jinx ends and how we get to current day. Because yeah. And it's been on there for a wild. while too. Yeah, it's, it's been, been a couple years because my boss is the one that originally put me onto it. And that was probably like two years ago. I want to say the jinx was filmed in like 2015 or something like that. Yeah. Maybe even longer ago. But yeah, it's been out there for a while. Yeah, I had a I just... co-worker and, and her fiance, you know, he was, he's super into true crime and he kept telling me you have to watch the jinx on HBO, you have to watch it. And he like, he wouldn't go into too many details. So I thought it was just another run of the mill, like one or two people get murdered type of thing. Um, but it wasn't until I got HBO because of the flight attendant, if you mm-hmm. haven't, because Kaylee Cuoco is amazing. Yeah. Um, also, if you have anxiety, I would say watch this during the daytime. The first couple of episodes of Flight Attendant because I don't have anxiety, but it gave me anxiety. Oh, yeah. She is so good. It's panned into her face, and you can like. The way that was filmed and told was very interesting to me. Very, very interesting. So, anywho, um, yeah, I would say at least get the get the seven day free trial. Yeah, um, and binge watch the Jinx. Yeah. on it, it's totally worth it. It's so interesting to me too that it takes place over so many decades. Like, remember, Kathy disappears in 1982. Yeah, and then, you know, we cut forward to like the 2000s or whatever. Yeah, and he, I mean, this all starts when he's in his 50s. When he's interviewed for the Jinx, he's in his 60s. 
Yeah, he's an older guy. And he's now in his 70s. So, like, this has been going on for a long time. And the All Good Things, let me see if I can see real quick where it's available. Uh, It's on Amazon Prime. Okay. So, I might go watch it. The Kathy portion, that's wrapped up as it's wrapped up as going to be, right? Do we come back to that? Yeah, that's as wrapped up as I remember at this point. So... But Susan's shit is about to blow to pieces. Okay. Well, I'm going to go watch All Good Things, too, just to see how good Derecki did on that. Yeah. So, there's that. Uh, Meanwhile, in our What the Florida Today, a Florida man, once arrested for fighting a drag queen with a tiki torch, runs for mayor. (laughs) What? So, Boyd Corbin... Was reportedly dressed in an ironic, quote-unquote, KKK costume at a Halloween party in 2012 when he allegedly got into a brawl with a man in drag, leading to his arrest for aggravated assault. But that couldn't stop him from running for mayor for the small city of Wilton Manors two years later. (laughs) Only two years later. (laughs) There's so many things happening there. Can you imagine seeing somebody in a KKK outfit and a drag queen fighting in the middle of the street with a tiki torch? Um, I'd be like, this club is too wild for me. I need to go home. What? Uh, Was this Halloween at least? Oh my gosh. Hold on. This one's actually really funny too. Um, We'll give you a twofer. Florida man trapped in an unlocked closet for two days. (laughs) Ironically. (laughs) John Arwood, 31, and Amber Campbell, 25, thought they were stuck in a janitor's closet at Daytona State College for two days before they realized they could just open the door and walk out. Oh. My God. How simple do you have to be? Oh, my gosh. That's really funny. Oh, my God. Only in Florida. I would love it even even more if it was, like, a door without a doorknob. It was just, like, a pole handle. (laughs) There's no lock on it. Like the type to the gym lockers or whatever you just push open. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, Florida people. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so we will see you next week for part two. In the meantime, you can follow us over at our Instagram. Our handle is at a stranger danger podcast. You can email us a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook stranger danger colon a true crime podcast and follow the group stranger danger colon murder lovers and you could also follow us on twitter using sd true crime pod thank you so much guys thank you see you next time bye-bye bye